Welcome to season seven of my podcast, Between Us, Stories of Unconscious Bias. This season, I speak to people in Mexico, America, Ireland, Sri Lanka, India, and the UK. I have stories that I'm sure will resonate with anyone anywhere in the world. For example, how to be more confident, or how are we seen differently in the country of our birth, only because we don't look like everyone else. I also hear stories that are chilling, and I'm moved at how the speaker found the inner resilience to overcome their challenges. I hear stories of music, religion, and so much more. I hope you take away as much as I have when hearing these stories. Thank you so much for listening. So many of us around the world choose to emigrate from the country of our birth. We could be in our 20s when we arrive in the new country with a very strong sense of our own cultural identity. Does that identity get eroded or changed over the years? Do we unconsciously embrace a culture that is alien to us just to fit in? Are we able to straddle two very different cultures? Will we always see ourselves as a foreigner in our own home, be it the home of our birth or our adopted home. This is Between Us, Stories of Unconscious Bias. I am Smitha Tharoor. I'd like to introduce Monica Alcazar Duarte. Monica is a Mexican-British multidisciplinary visual artist whose work acknowledges her indigenous heritage while exploring current ideals of progress. Her work references Western society's obsession with speed, expansion, and resource accumulation as an index of advancement at a time in which ecological disaster looms and considers in her own quiet way other ways of seeing, knowing, and being in the world. That alone, I think, is a very powerful thing to think about. But in addition, Mm -hmm. what Monica does She embraces themes that are related to science and technology and their influence over society in the natural world. In her projects, she mixes images and new technologies, such as augmented reality, to create multi-layered work, producing meaning through seemingly disconnected narratives. And Monica's work has been exhibited and collected throughout Europe, Mexico, and the United States. But it's this business of Producing meaning through seemingly disconnected narratives is what really excites me because Monica has kindly offered to share her stories of unconscious bias with me and I'm looking forward to hearing more of what that means to her and to us. So thank you so much, Monica, for joining me today. Thank you for agreeing, chatting with me, Smita. I'm really excited about this. And all through Lisa Factor, I think I really want to acknowledge Lisa's Yes, thank you. Thank you, Lisa, for connecting the two of us. Absolutely. So, Monica, you are sitting in your parents' home in Mexico. I am jealous. Uh, The weather is uh, probably amazing. I'm in London, and today it has not decided whether it should rain or it should be sunny. So it's the kind of day we are living, typical British weather. (laughs) We're talking about unconscious bias, so let's focus on that. And I would love for you to tell me, especially because you do the work you do, what do you even understand by unconscious bias? I think up to now, or more or less the definition that I made for myself, it relates to assumptions about people, maybe based on their appearance, 
their culture or even their religion, the way they speak. I mean, one of the things that made me start thinking about all this is because I've traveled quite a lot. I left Mexico about 22 years ago. I've been living in Britain for 20 years now. And that has made me really acutely aware of my own foreignness <laughs> within both cultures, you know, Britain, where I go home now, London, and Mexico, where I still go home, but it's more of a distant home now. And whenever I travel between these two places, this sense of foreignness and bias just gets a little bit over the regular kind of sense that I live with. You know, I think unconscious bias in a way relates to these things that we do almost automatically, where we are not aware or we don't want to become as aware as we would like to be, you know? And so we let these assumptions pass constantly and makes us, in a way, measure the world. So I talk about measurement because at the moment I'm doing, or I've been working on a project about algorithms and bias. And algorithms, as you know, one of the many things that they do is curate images and the order in which images are curated for us online. And so what I've discovered is that because algorithms are mathematics, in a way they're a way of measuring and a way of classifying, in this case, human beings, because I'm interested in culture, you know, I'm interested in how Mexico is seen outside and inside and how it's represented, and in particular, Mexican femmes. So, yeah, I don't know if I answered. No, you did, you did. And I'm fascinated already, Monica, because I'm thinking about all the things you've said. I mean, one, about the fact that you are British, but you are also Mexican. And I, not Mexican, but I am Indian, but I am also British. And what does that mean? Am I a foreigner in India? Am I a foreigner in the United Kingdom? Who am I? What is my identity? You know, these are things that perhaps most immigrants who have been born and brought up in another country and then arriving in a second country, you know, as a young adult rather than born here, mm. wherever here is, will think differently. And then you said something else, which is kind of connected. And I want for you to share some stories around this, which is around algorithms and bias. And certainly I've looked at machine learning and certainly read enough to know that. You know, certainly in the United States, for example, I know that judges use machine learning to gauge how long a sentence should be. And very often, higher sentence is given purely because of the race of the person rather than the record of the person. So I don't know. You're the expert on this. So I would love to hear some more stories (laughs) on that. Well, you're researching. I'm just interested. I would love to hear some stories of your own and why you got to where you are. So please do share, Monica. Thank you. It all mixes up. You know how artwork works. You produce work parallel. I usually have three projects on the go. One is in research. The other one is already produced and has been out in exhibitions. And the other one is on the production. So all these stories that I'm going to tell you overlap. And now that I have some time to think about what has happened since 2017, for me, it's interesting, you know, because it entangles with family stories, with personal anecdotes, and with the more kind of, let's say, public sharing stories that go into my work, you know? So parallel to research about algorithms and myself having to travel between Mexico, the US, and the UK, and doing some searches online for the same terms, which would include broadly phrases like Mexicans are, why Mexicans are considered Mexican women and letting it to the 
internet <laughs> in a way to answer me, you know, in images, the phrase or complete these phrases. I learned that depending where I was, the answer would be different. And so the so first can thing you expand? that came Yeah, no, but I mean, yes, of can course. you just give me specific hmm. if you can remember? So you're sitting in New York and in London and somewhere in Mexico in your parents' home. And in all these three places, you punch in Mexican women are. Yes. And what or, are the differences Mexicans, that come up? Mexicans, Mexicans are, are considered yeah. or Mexico. Yeah. So for example, in Mexico, it will be very much about local news. At the time, in 2018 and 2019, and there were a series of protests by women. Like the Me Too movement somehow had caught up. And as you know, in Latin America, we have a serious problem with violence against women. And there are many different theories that are linked, maybe the failure of capitalism in countries like Mexico and so on. But most importantly, at the time, there were a lot of female and women groups coming together and talking and basically raising, highlighting the issues around uh, violence and how women would disappear and no one, the numbers would keep on increasing throughout the years. And the response from the authorities and the government and the community would not be enough. And so at the time, there was huge demonstration or protest that happened in El Angel de la Independencia, which the direct translation would be the Angel of Independence. And this is in one of the main streets or avenues in Mexico City, which is called Reforma, which mm -hmm. the direct translation would be Reform. And I only do these direct translations because sometimes I think life is very poetic in a very dark way. And so here they are, a group of women protesting against violence against women. And so when I put Mexican women are, the majority of the images I would get would be of women protesting against violence at the time. Right. Or would be around land rights, you know, and would be around violence against indigenous groups or violence against journalists. But also it would be about solidarity and it would be about communities coming together. And there would be a certain balance, you know, in the way the images would come back. In the U.S., it was pretty much, I mean, that was the Trump years. And it would be pretty much about migration and the bad hombre term that Trump coined and how Mexicans are undesirable and how violence basically is kind of seeping through the border down in Mexico, <laughs> upwards towards the U.S., you know? I still remember an image very much of a map that, right. in which Mexico is tainted with blood, and somehow the blood stain is kind of seeping into the U.S. It remained to me, and I still have a screenshot of that. Um, I'm and, at, and at some point, the completed sentence came back as, why Mexico is considered a failed democracy? And I thought, that's shocking. <laughs> You know, yeah. and in the UK, it was interesting. In the UK, it was pretty much about food and tacos and tequila and guacamole. And in fact, and while, while you were talking, I also decided to write Mexican women are and pressed enter on Google. And I'm sitting in London, as you know, and it talks to me about eight unbreakable rules for dating a Mexican woman. Yes. <laughs> that, it's that got nothing to, be, to do with I the know. things that you were saying. No. I mean, I, saw, I wrote women specifically, though. I didn't yes. say Mexicans are, I just said Mexican women are. And they've talked about dating and eight things you need to know to understand Mexican women. So it just goes to show the level of, here in the UK we're being taught either about the food or the culture or the personality okay. about Mexican people in the United States. 
we are being taught that we should not have much regard for them. And then, of course, in Mexico itself, it's a yet another story. So, yes. yeah, no, I find that fascinating. But please do, Monica, could you share a story, your own personal story around this? I'll come to that. I just have to finish the anecdote with the UK. In the sure, UK, sure, after about, I would say, 20 images, Mexicans would be mixed with Salvatorians and Colombians. And the thread that would connect us all would be the war against the drug cartels and the violence. And I thought that was really interesting because it was either we were about food and culture, as you say, which is really a relief for me as a Mexican. You know, it's a difference. It's a different type of exoticity. <laughs> exoticity, nevertheless, but it's a different sure, type of exoticity, is, yeah. you know. But then we would be mixed with the rest of uh, South America. And I think that's also something that happens because of the distance. And I seem to notice a disconnection in between Europe or the UK in particular with Latin America. And maybe it has to do that it's very far. And you know, there's no colonial link, direct colonial link established, you know, even though there is and is present and is there. But that's another story. Yeah. In terms of all these, at the same time, I'm talking with my grandmother. And my grandma now is 93. She turned 93 this year. And I'm talking to her because she's getting older and I don't want to miss any stories that she has to tell me about my family and because I'm somehow feeling a deep need to understand better my identity and a sense of history, personal family history, you know. And at that time, my grandma, we took out with one of my aunties a series of photos, family photos that she has. And one photo in particular wrapped all my senses only because he's very old and he's frayed on the edges and he's black and white and he's almost kind of starting to erase, you know, and you can sense that this is the only photo that remains of this particular image. And on it, you can see four women sitting on a bench that is made out of stone somehow. And two of them are holding babies on their laps. They are all so small that their feet do not touch the ground. And the way they are dressed, they all look that they are members of a certain community. They are members of an indigenous community. And in this photo, there's my grandma's mom and my grandma's grandma. And I ask her about this, and I ask her if they were members of a community. I ask her stories about this whole town and her childhood. And the first thing that she denies is that they were members of any kind of indigenous community. And I kind of try to eat a little bit more about this because that's my nature and I start talking with my aunties, my mom, my uncles and I start asking if they have any stories of any indigenous descent because in Mexico one way or another we are all connected to our indigenous blood and as a post-colonial country this is something that has been deeply erased and there's a profound sense of shame surrounding indigenous features. I wouldn't say indigenous culture but anyone who looks indigenous in Mexico usually tries to not erase it, but almost find a way that is not the only thing that people see about yourself. And as I say, this is a huge generalization. So let's refocus this within my own family's context. Mm -hmm. At this point, everyone has denied that we have any kind of indigenous connection and that my grandma's grandma was the last member of an indigenous community. And the reason they decided to leave it is because my grandma's mom, well, both my grandma and my grandma's mom have a little lighter features. Their skin is a little bit lighter. And my grandma's mom had green eyes. 
So it seemed almost pertinent to them to say, you know, we don't look anymore as indigenous as everyone else, so we're going to leave. And they leave to the city. At this, so this point... Is, hold on, I'm just going to respond to this because I want to hear more. But I'm going to just react to the first bit that you've said, which reminds me of what people call in the United States passing, where certainly 100 years ago, black people did not want to be seen as black. And if they had some mm. level of white race in them and they could be passed off as white, they would like to be, it's called passing, where they are. Yes. yes. They change their accents, they change the way they dress, they go and live in more white areas and completely disown any black heritage. Mm. And it's to protect themselves, to feel safe. That's there. absolutely right. Yes. Yes. And to reap some benefits that come with that. Exactly. Right? Maybe exactly. access to better education, better housing, and so on. And, you know, in a way, I don't hold it against my family at all. But what I was very surprised and where it's coming to at this point, because I'm attempting to do some work about all this, is that it doesn't matter anymore if they were members of a community or not. It is the reaction that my family had all the way up to today that it really catches my imagination. Because then it opens questions about how permanent that is and how prevailing it is in our culture and how necessary even it is in our culture for things to keep on working the way they work. And so we're so, talking now about five generations, your grandmother's right. mother, mm -hmm. certainly, and maybe your grandmother's grandmother. Mm -hmm. That's right. So that's, and I'm so, just doing my maths here. Yes, four to five generations. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so what it is interesting in terms of access, let's say, to better education is that I am the first generation from both sides of my family that have access to university, for example. Because when I talk about my own privilege of saying I live in Britain now, I think it's also, it has become really important for me to remember that I come not very far away from a not very privileged background at all. You know, both my parents come from a very humble background and I'm deeply proud of that. You know, I see the more I grow older, the more I'm open to celebrate that and not to hide it. You know, in Mexico, there's still this mythology of hiding humble backgrounds. Because as you grow older, you kind of learn other ways of presenting yourself in order to have access to even better education or even better jobs or whatever it is yeah. that you are supposed so, so to have access to. Two mm -hmm. unconscious biases you've mentioned here, Monica. One is colorism, is what I would call it. And actually, though, that colorism in relation to our basic identity and roots. Because, okay. you know, I come from an indigenous group of people. And I'm suggesting that I'm not part of that group. And then the other, of course, is also not just about that. It's also socioeconomic. And the unconscious biases that people have, positively or negatively, towards groups of people. So if you say you have, you know, you have a qualification, you've done an undergrad, you've done a postgrad, you're studying, you all of this, no matter where you come from, they automatically have higher regard for you than that person who's finished school and is probably holding down an extremely good job, but that's not good enough because they don't have the educational level that you do. Is that what you're saying? I think in a way, but it's also societal, you know, Smita, it's almost systemic. And I think the easiest way I pinpointed to is that we live in a post-colonial society. So, for example, every time I come back to the country, there are a series of signs that come 
to the surface of my skin in almost a hurtful way. And that is in that every person that I see, for example, in advertising or TV is aspirational and they look very European and usually they're kind of light skin and their features have nothing or almost nothing to do with 90% of the population in the country. And I find that shocking. <laughs> that is still very accepted, you know, and he's encouraged. Well, well, and, and, but sadly, Mexico is not alone in that regard. As you know, I'm Indian and I yeah. travel to India regularly. And even today, if you look at ads, with exceptions, but there are some exceptions where some organizations are really trying to create more inclusive ads. But you look at ads, you look at movies, the Bollywood movies, and you're seeing people who are lighter skinned and certainly for the women that the best bodies on earth, teachers mm -hmm. are perfect. And of course, that's not what the human beings are about, are we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when I go out of Mexico and years keep on passing and more and more people ask me if I have some kind of indigenous heritage or connection or if I come from a certain particular area that has indigenous connections, I notice in myself the more time passes, a lesser resistance to accept these comments as something interesting. <laughs> because this is something fascinating that happens within me, I think, you know, at least for me. Because what it means is that I grow closer to admitting not only how I look like, but why I look like the way I look like, if that makes sense. It and, makes what happens, sense. and what happens is that at some level, painful, you know, to admit this within oneself, because what it means is that there's a certain level of participation within a system of erasure and how complicit I've been in my own erasure and how is the glance of others and maybe an unbiased glance of others who are kind of attracted, celebrating, curious about my appearance and it's through these eyes of others that I kind of almost accept myself. And this is shocking. I mean, because it talks about my own complicity and things that I've grown up with that I didn't notice until I travel and I start understanding myself and my country and my culture from a different perspective. And I don't know if this makes sense. I mean, it this is has been I'm, a whole process of 20 no, years, I'm, you know? I'm staying silent because I'm just processing what you're saying, Monica. And it's actually very powerful because I suppose if I were to say it slightly differently, all of us create our own reality to get on with the world and look at the world and articulate and communicate and create relationships and so on. And some things work better than others. And that's what has worked for a long time. For example, the fact that you do not come from an indigenous community, you are. Mexican, but then that means something else again, but yes, and therefore people see you differently. And then it's about actually owning who you are. Right. And that's and a scary thing to it. do, isn't it? And celebrating it and not being afraid of celebrating it, you know, and kind of almost dig out other things that you might have missed throughout half of your life, in my case, my life, because I was not encouraged to celebrate it and so then what happens this is the next story that i'm going to tell you 
Please. Is that I go back to Mexico when I was studying my MA in, in photojournalism and documentary photography in London College of Communication. I decided to do my thesis or my final year project about Mexico. And the reason I decided to do it is because I've been out of the country for six years. I haven't been able for one reason or another, mainly economic, because it's quite expensive to go fly between Britain and Mexico for six years. And I decided to do this with the very clear consciousness of how much my view of Mexico has been shaped by being abroad, by popular culture, by news, by novels, by articles, by things that I've seen or in which I've seen Mexico portrayed while being away from Mexico, and how much my experience then of the country will be shaped by this. So I go back to small towns in the in the state of Guerrero. Guerrero, in that year that I go back, which is 2013, has been in the news a lot as one of the most violent states in Mexico, you know. My parents are living in this place that is called Ciguatanejo. There are two little towns. One is Ixtapa, the other one is Ciguatanejo. And they are side by side. In Ixtapa, you have 1970s kind of retro style hotels and in Ciguatanejo you have all the workers that work in these hotels and the difference between these two towns even though they are connected by the same road is quite striking and my mom and dad keep on telling me these stories you know like they lack water the lack of lighting services no mm -hmm. sometimes the light doesn't work in the streets and the place is very dark and so on and how every day, for example, in Ixtapa, you have gardeners watering the plants, even though in Cihuatanejo they are lacking water almost by the day, you know. And so I decided to go there and stay for three months and take photos. And the way the photographs change within this time is just striking. I mean, at the beginning, you can see a distance. I'm not really approaching the place. I'm really kind of almost scared and paranoid of people. And <laughs> even though there's a lot of violence going on in the area. You can see people going on with their lives. And this reminds me of growing up in Mexico, you know, with the idea that there's violence in the place and there might be bad things that are happening and that you need to be careful, like you need to be careful in London, you know. But it's not that exact sense of paranoia that I feel back in 2013 when I'm taking these photos, you know. It's very present. And so I try to focus on this for the first month. And then for the next two months, I try to approach people in a different way. And I start chatting with people and I get invited to a quinceañera, you know. <laughs> Someone in the town tells me, come, you have to come and have dinner with us. And so, of course, the experience of the place just completely changes. Awesome. And so the whole project focuses on the impossibility that my documentary photography has on giving the audience a complete sense of the place. And I basically accept that this is a personal experience that is completely subjective and that is incomplete. And so I end up making a piece of work that talks about fragments and how these fragments will never give you a complete sense of a place and the impossibility of giving a complete sense of a place at the same time, you know? I was going to say, I just want to point to that because it's also, I love the word that you've used, fragments, but it's also outside inside, isn't it? Because Certainly for month one, you were very much the outsider. And there was almost an invisible war between you and your camera and whatever you were photographing. And it's only when you actually 
sat with them, broke bread, as they say, ate with them, laughed with them, chatted with them, that you could actually appreciate them as human beings rather than being a documentary photographer from a distance. That's right. And so the work, for example, is called Your Photographs Could Be Used by Drug Dealers. And it's provocative in the sense that this was a conversation I had with a soldier when I asked him, can I take your portrait? I would see the soldier every day. I would go to photograph the towns at seven in the morning and I would walk around a certain area. And he said, no, because your photo could be used by a drug dealer. And I laughed. And within 10, 15 minutes, he convinced me that he was right. And he explained to me where this paranoia was coming from. And in a way, I decided to use that phrase to contextualize the rest of the book, because then the rest of the book is nothing theatrical, you know, it's very, in a way, boring, a series of boring photographs about daily life, about things that are not spectacular, that portray or attempt to portray the daily life of people who keep on going with their lives as best as they can in this place, you know, in these two towns. And I thought that was important. It was almost like saying we all have these certain expectations or the majority have these certain expectations about Mexico and they think they know what they're about to look at and none of the images are going to show what you're expecting to see. And I thought that was very important and it was a very important exercise for me as well, you know? Absolutely, um, yeah. Don't perpetuate other people's unconscious biases. Try and challenge them when they look at these pictures. I love that. And the expectations and assumptions that we have about cultures always, and places. Always, exactly. So, so from, I'm going to go back to the story that my grandma told me and this experience that I found myself having from having this conversation with my grandma and with my family. This forces me to kind of rethink my whole practice, Mita, because for the past four or five years, I've been producing work that relates to ideas of science and technology. And before the algorithm project, I worked on a project about space exploration. And this story is something that I encountered talking about exoticity and how people perceive me and how I use this to make my work in a way. I start showing these series of sculptures and photography and augmented reality, talking about exploring Mars and trying to use that as a pretext to talk about ecology on Earth. And I'm not going to go because that's a completely different conversation. I'm not going to go in depth about it. Mm -hmm. But in one opening, I'm showing this work. And I notice that people are very surprised when I show them the augmented reality app. And they keep on asking me, did you make this? But with very surprised eyes. And one person actually says to me, I thought that the sculptures at first thought it was a man who made them. And then I thought <laughs> it was a, ma a white man. <laughs> But it's you. And the way they said this, it was mm. like they were paying a compliment or something, you know? And I just thought, wow, this is shocking. <laughs> because what this is telling me in a way is that people really, number one, do not expect a woman to make this kind of sculptural objects because they're heavy. And I don't know. I really honestly don't know. And big, I really don't know if it has to do with scale or the materials I'm using. But on top of that, they're not expecting a Latin American woman to be talking about space exploration. And it's 2020, and here we are having these conversations. And I just thought this has to do, you know, linked to that conversation that I had with my grandma. It has to do with almost thinking of Mexico as a country of the past. And the way the culture is celebrated is almost like, look at the Mayans and how wonderful they were. And look at the tacos and the legacy of these cultures, you know? And I thought, well, 
it is interesting to start incorporating into my work the fact that I look the way I look. I come from the place I come from. And I'm talking about this series of themes. And I think it is important to start acknowledging that I come from a country where indigenous culture is still very present. And I do not know for certain if I come from an indigenous community or not. But I think it is important to start kind of mixing it and putting it within the mix, you know, of all these things that I am. And I think it's important to bring it at the forefront of conversations. And at the moment, I'm working and researching on a project that I hope it gets off the ground, but it includes Mayan scientists. And the first time that someone mentioned Mayan scientists, for a split second, I noticed within myself a jarring, a moment of thinking, these two words do not go together. Mm. And I thought, why is that? I'm surprised. And so I started making research about this and I'm developing this new piece of work surrounding this. And it has to do with what I'm saying. You know, it has to do with saying Mexico is a culture that is alive and is great and is colorful. But mainly it remains as a culture of the past, even though there are groups of people who are still doing discoveries and are still kind of pushing boundaries. And so I'm trying to focus on that. I like that because what I particularly appreciate your telling all of us is that here you are making sculptures, augmented reality, and doing something that a lot of people think white men should do and not a Mexican woman. But put that aside, by doing that, by getting reactions to that, what you are doing is connecting to something that is deeply, deeply personal to you. And that is your relationship with your grandmother and her stories. And why does she present the story she does? And how does that then affect you? I mean, I know you've said it and I'm saying it, but I'm just saying it again because it's so many layers that you just talked about, Monica. I want our listeners to appreciate this because it, the obvious and conscious biases that you've talked about are, for example, how, you know, the colorism, as I mentioned, you know, green eyes, you can't be indigenous or socioeconomic, or more recently, the one you gave an example of, you know, here, Mexican woman, you know, making sculptures, whereas you wouldn't expect that. You would expect perhaps white men to do it. These are kind of more traditional unconscious biases that happen all over the world. But what I'm finding particularly powerful about what you're saying is about your personal history, your narrative. And what was the phrase you used? Create um, multi-layered work producing meaning through seemingly disconnected narratives. I love that. When I read that out, when I was introducing you, Monica, those words really resonated with me because that's what you're doing, aren't you? By talking to your grandmother and then going off and doing some sort of sculpture and then taking photographs somewhere else, even if it's the older project of 2013, if you, now you would do it differently. And they're all connected, but they're not connected. Superficially, they're not connected, but actually they're all connected. All connected back down to you. You're the one who holds them together. Isn't that what you're saying? Yes, in a way I am. And in a way, I'm also interested by mentioning all these in complexity. You know, mm -hmm. I find somehow, and I wouldn't necessarily pinpoint it all to social media, but let's just for the sake of the argument, pinpoint it into the oversimplification of information that we're experiencing mm -hmm. today and how there's a lack of complexity and layering and thinking that, you know, geography and politics and sociology and philosophy and biology, they all have shaped 
each other in different ways. They all influence each other. They all interconnect. And they all come together as a galvanization of knowledge. And it is in that galvanization of knowledge that I'm interested in somehow creating interventions or highlighting the complexity that lies behind that somehow I see that is increasingly getting lost in these days. It's lovely, Monica. It's all through a personal story, you know, and sometimes I kind of lose courage and I think, oh my God, I'm going to get into trouble by saying all these things because I understand that they can be, depending on the context that you present them, if I present them throughout a Mexican context, they can be very provocative, you know. If we present it within the UK context, there are certain cultural subtleties that, you know, people in the UK are not aware of and they might not seem as provocative. And so I think that one of the lessons I've learned is that it's just kind of remaining in, in between has completely enriched my life in a very painful way, you know, because it almost feels sometimes that I don't want to make a stand. But the perspective that this has given me and continues to give me is just outstanding and is invaluable, Smita. It completely remaining shapes my experience between. of the world. Yeah, and remaining in between those words you choose. I love that. Why do we have to choose sides? Why do we have to say, I am this and I'm not that? And it's mm. the point of remaining in between. But, you know, you're in Mexico right now. So, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm making an assumption and maybe it's an unconscious bias. But it might be easier for you to remain in between when living in Mexico amongst your family, you know, where you grew up and everything is just so how it used to be when you were, you know, until 20 years ago when you lived there. And then you come back to London, grey, dark, dismal London. And of course, the culture is literally completely different to where you are right now. How do you manage to you know, challenge your unconscious biases when you come back here and continue to live in between? It's a difficult question. I think it's an ongoing process. I think I have to resist the temptation of trying to improve things when I come back, for example. I don't think it's comfortable at all coming back to Mexico. I think it takes me usually two weeks to land or to arrive to Mexico. I constantly catch myself being really hard towards the country where I was born, you know, and seeing things that don't work and wishing that they would be better. And I beat myself up for feeling like that, you know, because that I think it comes from my experience of being outside and thinking that I can improve a place instead of listening to the place. So it takes me a good two weeks, 10, 14 days to actually start listening to the place again and contextualize myself within the place here. And I can feel myself kind of falling again into the rhythm of the place almost and enjoying that. And when I go back to the UK, I can feel how that different rhythm jars to the city. Even a city like London is like really strongly very fast, you know. And I think what I try to do when I go back to the UK is, again, to kind of resist from looking at faults that I see in the UK and resist this impulse of thinking, oh, there are things that could improve here if we could only see Mexico <laughs> or if we could only kind of implement things that I see that work so well in Mexico. You know, it goes both ways. Of course it does. And what you're doing, simply put, is actually, and I like that phrase you use, listen to the place. 
I will go to Mexico and I will start listening. I'll come back to London and I will listen. I love that. And it's almost like remaining. It's exactly. It's almost like remaining open to whatever the river. I identify it a lot with something that goes underneath the surface of things. And it's like a river that is constantly there flowing. And it's almost like you need to kind of remain open and listen to what those. Yes, and beyond the surface of things, I think, and people and places. That's and so, yes, but you know, but it takes its toll as well, you know. Because of course, it's hard it's work. Very, and it's very difficult for people because constantly we live in, I think, a society that tries to pinpoint everyone. It's easier to say, oh, I can define you clearly so then I can know what you're about. And yes. so to be in this kind of constant fluidity or fluid state, I think makes people nervous sometimes, even myself, you know? So then I kind of have to resist to fall and try to define myself. And by challenging your own unconscious biases, you're helping the society that you live in also to challenge their own unconscious biases and not to pigeonhole people and have expectations based on X, Y, or Z. That's wonderful, Monica. And I can tell you what the stories that you've shared will resonate not just with Mexicans or Londoners, but with Anyone from any country that has left their country of birth after, say, 20 years, lived in another country and then visits both every once in a while. And this idea of fluidity of identity, who am I? How do I see myself? What do I want to be? And to listen when you go back home, whichever side you're going home to. Monica, Monica, it's been wonderful. (laughs) I've really enjoyed talking to you and hearing your thoughtful stories and sharing of unconscious bias. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and lovely to meet you, even if it's far away. But I hope we meet in person. We are both Londoners. I'm sure we will. that my podcast series is now heard in 104 countries, ranging from Guadalupe to Iceland, Argentina to Palestine, and even Morocco. It is ranked in the top 3% worldwide. This is clearly a series that connects with people all over the world, and you are one of them. I thank you for listening. I would also like to thank Jack Godfrey for his original music in the closing of each podcast interview. If you like this episode, Please do share, rate, and review. I am Smitha Tharoor. Until next time.